0: I want to remind you of the context of this letter, the circumstances that surround this letter. Remember, this is a book for sufferers. More specifically, this is a book for a suffering church, for suffering Christians. And even more specific than that, this is a book for Christians who are suffering in the church on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus. This is also a book about submission, right? That's where we have been recently. That's where our hearts have been in this notion of honoring and respecting and giving deference uh, to government, to masters, to employers, even ones who are cruel and who don't deserve our respect. And this is also a book most recently about witness. In other words, this is wisdom not simply to endure, but to thrive and to shine as God's people before a watching world to the glory of God. And so the context is one of suffering, submission, and witness. And I just want us to remember that. Secondly, I want us to think about our presuppositions. Now, I know that's a a big word, kids, It just means that we all come to the Bible with our own set of beliefs, with our own set of assumptions, with built-in, ready-made ideas from our own experience and from the collective cultural air that we breathe on how things ought to be and what God ought to say. Right, and sometimes we find those presuppositions in opening the scriptures uh, that we find them completely aligning with what God has to say. And then, in other times, we open God's word with our presuppositions, and we find God's word upending our thinking, and that's uncomfortable. So you need to know that, to remember that, as you listen. as you hear things that might evoke feelings or, or attitudes in you. And I wanna address this morning as we walk through this passage in continuing our study, I wanna address what I'm gonna call triggers. Five of them, there's five trigger words, at least in this passage. And I plan to address all of them. Yes, this, this passage was written in a specific cultural context. Our cultural context is very different and yet, God's Word doesn't change. It endures. It remains here for us, preserved by the Holy Spirit, and it means something for us today. Now, those of you who have been with us for uh, the last few weeks, remember that Peter is in the midst of a section of real practical advice for this young church in applying the gospel to various relationships, our human relationships, relationships in exile, in a place that we don't call home. And so we've looked at citizens in exile. We've looked at employees and employers in exile. And today, we're going to look at husbands and wives in exile. Now, I realize that not everyone here this morning hearing these words is married. Some of you will be, some not. So while this won't directly apply to you in the same way that it will some, I want to remind you that this is still for you. It's still for you because you have married friends, you have married siblings, you have the occasional opportunity to speak into their lives, to give them counsel according to God's word. You need to hear what God has to say. But also, there's a a beautiful picture that I want us all to see, whether we're married or not, here this morning. A picture that I want us to have in the back of our minds, and it's the picture of Jesus Christ and his relationship with his people, right? Because Jesus, the scripture proclaims, is our bridegroom. And we, his church, are his bride the one that he is making blameless for his return. And so marriage, the scripture proclaims, marriage is the mirror of this divine human relationship between Jesus and his church. And so while we may strive to to be these things, to be obedient to what God's word calls us here this morning, we we ultimately know that we're going to fall short, and yet Jesus doesn't. And especially as we come to verse seven, that Jesus possesses these things and displays these things in absolute beauty and perfection. And so I invite all of you, whether you're married or not, to listen closely to see Jesus. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning? First Peter chapter three, you can follow along in your insert or in the Bibles that you have before you. First Peter chapter three, reading the verse first seven verses: "Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct." Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now let me dispel something that may immediately strike you upon reading those verses. Six verses for women and one for the men. The men are saying yes. Women are saying what? Why is this? I think there's an easy explanation, a simple reason As I said, this book was written in a time and a place and a context, and it's likely that the women in these churches, churches of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, are simply needing more encouragement and guidance in their specific context than the men. Interestingly enough, we looked at Ephesians years and years ago. If you go to Ephesians 5 and look at Paul's instructions for husbands and wives, the exhortation, the amount of exhortation is flipped. Much more is said to the men than to women in that case. And so don't read too much into that, men or women. Also keep in mind that Peter, here in this passage, is not saying everything that needs to be said or that can be said on the institution of marriage and on God's design for marriage. He's simply honing in on the particular concerns in the lives of these, but as he does that, he does reveal for us a fundamental design of how he wants husband and wives to relate. So I want to walk through this passage hopefully answering a lot of the questions that you might have about it and gaining God's perspective on our marriages with two clear exhortations. They're found right here in the Bible. I'm going to reword them. The first one is to wives. The second one is to husbands. And so the first exhortation this morning is, wives, fearlessly submit to your husbands wives fearlessly submit to your husbands there i said it the s word trigger trigger number 1 submit here in our passage, it's translated as be subject, but it's the same Greek form that is used by Paul in the book of Ephesians. It's the same word that is used of Jesus in relationship to his parents in Luke 2. It's the same word used of Jesus in relationship to his father in 1 Corinthians 15. Peter says, as the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, deferred, so ought you. Wives, fearlessly submit to your husbands. Now remember, this is nothing new. We've been thinking about this idea of submission for weeks now, right? Citizens submitting to governors and emperors and those in authority. Servants submitting to their masters. Peter even prefaces his remarks before he addresses the wives and before he addresses the husbands with the word likewise. In other words, this is a continuation of what Peter has unpacked in all those other contexts, right? That's one of the the challenges of, of preaching like we do, is those in the original context would have heard this book in its entirety, and here we're chopping it up, and so we have to remind ourselves of where we've been, of where Peter has been, and the continuation of argument that he is jumping upon. There are God-given authority structures in our lives that we all are called to recognize, honor, respect, and obey. And here, Peter applies that to the design of marriage, to the responsibility of wives, and to the responsibility that husbands bear before the Lord in this regard. This is done, remember, likewise, this is done not because of these men, because of their worth, but despite them even, right? Verse 13, for the Lord's sake, Peter told us in chapter 2. Verse 19, mindful of the Lord, he told us. And here in this context, as he addresses these wives in the ancient Roman Empire, this Seems to be, he seems to be addressing wives, at least partly, not entirely, but partly wives who are in marriages where the husband is not obeying the word. Now, most everybody believes that that means that these husbands are not believers, they don't have faith in Jesus Christ. And note that in that context, It was assumed, it was expected, that women would embrace the religion of their husbands. So when you think about that, that cultural context, here Peter is empowering women to use their influence to lead their husbands to their faith. This would have been hard would have been hard for many who hear this. Maybe it's difficult for some of us here as you think about your own context. And so what, is, what exactly does this look like? Well, maybe the place to begin in thinking about this is what it doesn't look like. Submission does not mean putting your husband before Jesus. That should be clear. That ought to go without saying, considering where we've been. But here's another thing submission is not. Submission is not, as I've heard it described well, submission is not mousy. Mousy. What I mean by that is, is timid and unassertive and withdrawn and in a corner. That's not what Peter is calling wives to do here. Actually, Peter is calling wives to be just the opposite. He's calling wives to be strong and to be fearless. These are women with power and plans, subversive power as they live under God, mindful of God according to his design and according to his purpose. And that's why I say wives fearlessly submit to your husbands. There's a scene in the movie my big fat Greek wedding. And Maria, the mom, is talking to her daughter, Tula, about the reality that her dad must at some point find out that Tula has fallen in love and plans to marry a man who is not Greek. Some of you know what line I'm about to say. Maria tells her daughter this bit of humorous wisdom. She says, let me tell you something, Tula. The man is the head but the woman is the neck and she can turn the head any way that she wants. It's a great line and it's somewhat akin to what Peter is saying. Turn the headship of your husband. These men need Jesus. They need to be led to Jesus. And so turn their headship don't thwart their headship, turn their headship. And how ought they do that? Well, not the way the world teaches women to influence men. Peter's culture was not unlike ours with the pressure on women to, to look a certain way, to adorn themselves in certain ways, to look externally beautiful Peter's not saying in this passage that braided hair and jewelry are bad or forbidden for the Christian. No, he's simply saying that's not where the power lies. That's not a strategy for the gospel to take root. That's not where women reflect the heart of God. We live in a culture where Instagram likes are based upon images and those images make you a, a quote unquote influencer. You've heard that phrase in our society, and an influencer in our society. This is the way our world turns men, but God's design, God's billboard is the heart, the inner person and the fruit that flows from that. So what does submission look like? Well. He gives us a couple words. A quiet and gentle spirit. Well, maybe for some of you, those are trigger words number two and number three. You say, that sure sounds mousy to me. But it isn't. First of all, these are not feminine descriptors alone. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 11, urges all of us to live quietly. It's simply the opposite of, of rebelliousness. It's someone who is poised and serene and unflappable, and gentleness, gentleness is Jesus. Jesus, who says in Matthew 11, I am gentle and lowly in heart. I read a great article recently about the fact that one of the most, according to the author, one of the most neglected virtues in the evangelical church today and in the cultural climate that we live in is that of gentleness. And in the article, the author quotes Jonathan Edwards, this 18th century New England pastor who preached at David Brainerd's funeral. David Brainerd was... um, his son-in-law but also a missionary and he says this he says the nature of this glory of Christ that they shall see those who are in Christ's presence after death the nature of this glory of Christ that they shall see will be such as will draw and encourage them for they will not only see infinite majesty and greatness but infinite grace condescension and mildness and gentleness and sweetness equal to his majesty. And so, brothers, a quiet and gentle spirit is not putting women in their place. And sisters, it is not. Don't talk. Leave your brain at the altar. Agree with everything your husband says. Clearly, the marriages that Peter is addressing, the husband and wife, don't agree on the fundamental matter of faith, and yet she, reflecting Christ, submitting to Christ and therefore to her husband, is doing the most important work of evangelizing her husband, of reflecting the heart of God and the grace of God without even saying a word. Wives fearlessly submit to your husbands. Well, one more trigger word before we take aim at husbands for a second. Trigger word number four, verse six. Call him Lord. (laughs) Peter undergirds this whole discussion by inviting women to follow the holy example of women of old. Right? Women that the Jewish... Contingent of these congregations would know well. Women like Sarah, who, though she wasn't perfect, followed her husband into the wilderness, into the unknown. But that's not what's highlighted here. What's highlighted here is the fact that she called him Lord. Now, the question we should ask ourselves is, when did she call him Lord? When exactly did this happen? Well, Genesis 18.12 is when it happened, Sarah has just been told by the Lord that in her golden year, she's going to be pregnant. She's going to have a child. And so Sarah says this, not to Abraham, but to the angelic being. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now what sticks out to you about that reference? The answer is nothing. Nothing sticks out about that. She's not saying, yes, Lord, to one of Abraham's requests. She is simply referring to Abram in a natural, respectful way, one that affirms his leadership, one that affirms her honor of him. In other words, this isn't don't hear from Peter this patriarchal heavy-handedness. This is Peter reminding his hearers, reminding the church that one of the pillars of their faith wasn't one who was interested in bad-mouthing her husband behind his back, nor did she surrender her will or keep her opinions quiet, but she did yield to and honor and respect his leadership in the marriage. We all know that Abram, he had some dumb ideas, right? I mean, one wonders what Sarah thought and what she told him when Abram came up with the idea of pretending that she was his sister rather than his wife. I doubt she liked that one very much. But she trusted her husband and followed him. So Peter invites wives to do likewise. Likewise. Your husbands are not perfect, but by God's grace and mindful of him, that is of Christ, God calls you to help them lead. They need you. That's the first exhortation. Now on to the husbands. Husbands, be lifelong students of your wives. Husbands, be lifelong students of your wives. As the scriptures now aim at us men, I want us to remember the first word of verse 7, the word that began the exhortation to the wives, likewise. Likewise. In other words, in this stream of recognizing authority structures, of fearing God, being mindful of Him, even giving up your rights, if need be, as Christ gave up His rights and entrusted himself to God the Father. Likewise, husbands, be lifelong students of your wives. Study your wives. It literally says, live with her according to knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Well, we certainly would say men of faith, men of the Lord, men of God, need to be men of the word men who know and love Jesus and are pursuing him, who know his precepts and his call on their lives. So know the word, but know her. Know her. Know her weaknesses and her strengths, her loves and her fears. Learn what triggers her and why it triggers her. In and I just before... just before I sat down to work on this passage, Ann and I had a conflict because I said something that triggered her. 24 and a half years of marriage and I'm still learning, I'm still forgetting, I'm still relearning and repenting as I seek to know her and honor her and love her. It's not going to end. Know your wife. And then finally, know you. Right? You need to know yourself in relation to her. You need to know the ways you fall short in showing her love, the ways you are blind to her needs, how you ought to respond, how I didn't respond when she was triggered. You see, living in an understanding way, is a humble, gentle, honoring leadership that wants to know what your wife thinks, that recognizes the wisdom in yielding to her point of view, that knits your hearts together as one and makes you an effective force in the kingdom. You see, I think that's what Peter's getting at when he says and speaks of prayers being hindered at the very end of our passage. I don't think, though it could be, I don't think that he's speaking of God not listening to the prayers of a man because he's a jerky husband. Maybe. But the word your there, your prayers, is a plural word. I think it's praying together. Who wants to pray with your wife when you're in conflict with her? When you're not understanding one another, when you're looking past one another, when you're thinking past one another. But when you are one, when two are gathered in the name of the Lord, how effective are our prayers? Husbands, be lifelong students of your wives. Well, one final trigger word, number five. Do this considering she is the weaker vessel. The weaker vessel. What does Peter mean here? Well, there are some built-in, undeniable realities in our world. We can debate these another time if you want. While there are some women, maybe even in this room, who could beat the snot out of some men in this room, generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women. Right, our bodies, our bone structures, our capacities, our giftings are different because we were made for different things. We're running into a lot of confusion about this in our day and our age, but it's the reason why our sports leagues are still separate, right? It's not a level playing field physically for all involved. If you want to debate that later, we can debate it, but I don't think we need to. And husbands, you don't need to enter into a marriage with your wife and arm wrestle at the beginning of your marriage to find out who should address the intruder in your house in the middle of the night. Men, that's your job. You are called to protect. You are called to lead. And so while Peter may be focusing somewhat on the physical differences between men and women, I think he also may be focusing on the fact that if women are walking in the way that the Scriptures call them to walk in verses one through six, then there will be inevitably vulnerability there. Right? There always is vulnerability as we willingly submit to authority over us, to those who have some sense of power over us. But vulnerability and weakness in this way have nothing to do with value or worth. And Peter underlines this and underscores it and says, husbands, your wives are co-heirs in the grace of life. Our wives, they're, they're queens, brothers. They're queens, and we must treat them as such. Brothers and sisters, this is what a marriage in exile, whether in the first century or in 2020, is supposed to look like. It's a marriage that points to another. The one who knows us. The one who knows everything about us, he knows our weaknesses, he honors us and yet has loved us through the outpouring of his love, through the giving of his life. Such love stirs a bride, even us as the church, as the bride of Christ, to want to follow, to want to follow. And so I pray that our marriages would reflect this grace and this gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the challenging truths that we are not sufficient for. Truths that increasingly fly in the face of our culture a culture that seeks to blur distinctions and ultimately destroy your design. Father, I pray that you would not only teach us, but give us the grace to walk in obedience to your word for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.